This is Seattle Sports at Night with Curtis Rogers, Jake Heaps, and Stacey Rost on 710 ESPN Seattle. Hour number two of Seattle Sports at Night right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. Shout out to you for, for stopping by. We truly do appreciate it. Like, we found out we have more than six listeners. We've got eight. So shout out to the eight of you that are stopping by. Make sure you're checking in on the Coors Light text line. We got today. more than eight, Curtis. Come on now. All right. We got a squad. We've got 11. Shout out to you, 11. By the way, uh, by the way, the 813 is back in my life, uh, apparently. They're coming at me with what they what they said last night. Your arch nemesis. Yeah, they're back at it with the Guy Fieri hate. They say Guy Fieri's weird again. The exact same thing they said last night. But Yeah, uh, I, you should have seen... It, during the break, Curtis's face just get bright red with fury. Yeah. He's ready to take you on from Tampa. He's ready. I hope you know that. Oh, man. I, I love the, the people of Tampa. They're, they're, a great, they're a great people. Shout, shout out to Tampa. I've never been. Heard it's beautiful. Except this guy. Yeah, except for, for the 813. No. But uh, <laughs> I believe this is the 813 guy who, who's from Squim, which That's is right. Tampa and Squim – very much the complete opposite towns. <laughs> like, I I don't consider Squim to be the Tampa of Washington. Maybe I should. That's that's an interesting interesting transition to go from one city like that to the other. But uh, speaking of interesting transitions, we're going to talk about Seahawks OTAs <laughs> and <laughs> perfectly. Yeah, exactly. We're we are a well oiled machine here on this Thursday night, and Jake. You've been through OTAs, and you know what they are like, and you know how they differentiate from minicamp and from training camp and, and from rookie minicamp. Yeah. What is, I think, the what is the main goal from a player perspective of OTAs? Yeah, look, from a player perspective, you want to make everything perfect. You want to show up every single day and show that you can take the install, the information that you've been given and come right back the next day and execute that at the highest level. You want to be able to show your talent uh, coming through. But in the reality, in the grand scheme of things, it is more about for that particular team being able to go through your playbook and be able to do that multiple times through this phase. Uh, In OTAs, they started, uh, gosh, in the middle of March, and they've been able to get through their playbook about three different times. And so that's what you're going through in these 10 practices is you're going through different installs, different situations. And so these players are having to take the installs or playbooks on a given day. So, Curtis, we're going to go through and we're going to meet and we're going to install next day's practice. Here's your plays. Here's what we got. Here's the uh, uh, reads and assignments that you have, and we better ex- you better come back tomorrow ready to go and know exactly what those answers are. If I come in and ask you about what this play is, man, you better be able to recite it, recall it, tell me the exact details, and go and execute it the next day. So it, it is a lot of retention, a lot of information that's getting thrown your way every single day, and being able to translate that into onto the field is huge. But it isn't the end-all, be-all. Uh, ultimately, this is a this is one phase of the offseason. And really what you do in training camp, this is all preparatory for training camp, getting you ready to go for training camp. Because when training camp hits, the level of expectations is at an all-time high. And so this is more of an opportunity for you to fail. It, it, look, if you suck, let's just be honest, if you suck and you're performing 
well below your talent level, you're going to get cut. They're going to move on from you. But if you're making mistakes along the way, they're going to be okay with that from this time because they know that ultimately it comes down to training camp and they want to see what you can do in the preseason games. And and like you said, the level of urgency this time of season isn't what it is at training camp uh, because, I mean, there's still a lot at stake this time of year, Yeah, but not where it is at training camp. You've got preseason games to factor into that, and they're making roster cuts going Mm -hmm. from, what, 90 guys down to 53 in the matter of – about a month. Yeah, and and that's the other side of it. For a guy that's on the roster bubble like I was the entire time in my NFL career, every day, Curtis, was was, was nerve-wracking. <laughs> You're just hoping that the Grim Reaper, uh, who are the by. scouting department guys, are coming by and that they don't even say a word to you. You don't even want them talking to you. They're like, hey, Jake, ah, don't talk to me, right? Like, stay away from me. But, uh, look, there there is it's it's more forgiving during that time frame. So uh, you're able to from a scheduling standpoint, you're coming in at uh, look if you're serious about your business, you're coming in around six in the morning and you're leaving around one or two in the afternoon. Uh, whereas in training camp, you are there at the facility all day every day. There's no breaks. So uh, a lot different in terms of the intensity. So when you're trying to study those new installs and study what it is that the coaches have been given you. You say your day ends around, you know, one or so. Yeah. How late into the night are you up studying that new stuff? <laughs> is it like prepping for a final? Or, oh, yeah. Or, are you pulling an all-nighter? Yeah, absolutely. And for me, p- playing the quarterback position, I wanted to come back the next day, and my goal was to try and know it just as good, if not better, than Russell Wilson. That was my goal, right? I wanted to challenge him. I wanted to show the coaches that I could come in and do my job. And that's what you're trying to do, especially you guys, is you're trying to prove yourself. Every player has a different strategy or takes it, uh, not everybody takes it as seriously as you would like them to do. Um, And so that's where you see guys slip, guys fall, guys not uh, eventually be the player that you would project them to be because of their lack of preparation. So Curtis, in my case, when practice was done, when we were let go at 2 o'clock, I was back that whole afternoon and evening studying my playbook uh, having my wife, having my father-in-law uh, call plays back to me uh, so I could, I could spit the words back to them right, right back and, and feel confident when I would be on my drive uh, up to the VMAT, Curtis. Wow. I would not be listening to music. I'd be listening to uh, audio recordings of myself calling plays, and then I would try and call those plays back to myself because once you get that call of dual right, zebra short, uh, three jet, zebra shallow cross on one, you want to be able to re- – uh, spit that play right back out with confidence, knowing that you know everything about that play. Jeez. I mean, like, wow. Like, uh, OTAs, a lot of teams consider them optional. The Seahawks do. And we've seen guys over the last couple of years take advantage of that. Frank Clark, who missed last year's. Uh, Cliff Averill, he's missed some, what was it, Michael Bennett. Yeah. I think Richard Sherman and Earl Thomas also. Uh, lumped in that group, for those guys who do miss out on OTAs because for whatever reason, and a lot of it had to do with contract situations, and we're seeing Bobby Wagner show up to OTAs and not be actively involved on the field, but he's there in the building. He's there with the younger players. He's there with guys who he's you know been to work with the last almost decade now in the NFL. What is it that Bobby Wagner... I guess 
Like, what is he gaining by being there right now as opposed to the other guys who chose to do it their own way yeah. and not report for OTAs? Honestly, him not practicing, he's not really gaining a whole lot as an individual player. What he is doing is being selfless, knowing that his impact, his presence in the building, in meeting rooms, on the field, he has the ability to be able to um, impact those around him and give advice uh, to the younger players and teach them the game and teach them the right way to approach uh, the game uh, on the field and off of it as well. And also as a leader to make sure that his defense is doing their job and no one is slacking off in their responsibilities. So for him, it's really a selfless move. The other guys, they looked at it as a selfish deal and said, hey, I'm in a contract negotiation. I'm going to remove that presence, that important piece, and show the team, hey, I am a missed commodity, and being having me in the building is a luxury, right? And so that was the strategy of those players, and it doesn't affect their long-term ability to play. OTAs is voluntary for a reason, and those guys can afford to miss. It's not ideal. It's not what you would want, but those guys can o- overcome because they know the system. They know how to prep their bodies and get them ready to go at the peak moments in time. And so for Bobby, it's more about the other guys worrying about his teammates than necessarily worrying about himself. He's handling this first class all the way. This is textbook in terms of how you want to handle this and how a team should want you to handle this overall outside of actually participating 100%. Yeah, and I mean, you look at uh, with Pete Carroll, who has gone through this situation before with guys choosing to sit out OTAs or or to not even report to the building, whereas Bobby Wagner's in the building, and I think this is a different route that Pete has gone on, and here is what he had to say about the process between Bobby and the Seahawks right now. If you watched this as you have, you know, all throughout the offseason, there's been a process of step-by-step, step and, and uh, we're right in stride with the process. Bobby's been great. Everything's going to come together in time, and, and uh, I think you guys should just have everything's in, in order, and we're in order with what we want to do, and it and, uh, feels very comfortable and very amicable and all of that, so everything's going just right. When he says everything's in order and everything's going to come together, that is such a far cry from how they handled Earl Thomas last year where they really didn't say anything on Earl. And they said, like, Earl's not here. And that was pretty much all they had to say on Earl. Whereas Pete's saying everything's going to come together, everything's going to be fine. Now, he did say that with Frank Clark, and that turned out to be a different case. But Bobby is doing himself a service by showing up to OTAs. Without a doubt. He's got an opportunity, Curtis, to see the bad, good, and the ugly, right? When you talk about learning from, he's learned and saw what how Cam has handled it, how uh, Cliff and Michael and and, um, and Earl and 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 also how KJ's handled it. On the flip side, KJ showed up; he didn't miss a thing, uh, and so that's the part where he's been able to see both sides of it and how it's been able to work out. And Bobby is a a very intelligent guy. He's even keeled. He's humble. He doesn't want to make this about himself. He wants to make this about the team. He knows this is where he wants to be, but he also knows what the business of this league is like. He knows the reality of it. He's not unrealistic in knowing that, hey, this could turn the other way. My future as a Seahawk could potentially end if we can't come to an agreement. I'm not going to budge off of my numbers and what I think I deserve because this is what the market ultimately is. And so I think Bobby's handled it 
first class all the way. And, uh, yeah, the uh, texter uh, from the uh, 530 saying, uh, wish that Earl Thomas could have learned from Bobby Wagner on how to handle this. I wish that, too. I wish all these guys would have handled it the way that Bobby Wagner is. And uh, maybe it would be different for some of these guys. Probably not. But Bobby, with without a doubt, and did not surprise me that he was going to handle this first class all the way. Coming up next, John Morosi of MLB Network and Fox Sports. He joined Brock and Salk today to shed some light on what the Mariners might do around the trade deadline. So are the most obvious trade candidates for the Mariners the ones who will actually be dealt? Well, let's take a listen. That's coming up next. Curtis Rogers and Jake Heap, Seattle Sports Tonight on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to Seattle Sports at Night with Curtis Rogers, Jake Heaps, and Stacey Rost. Powered through the Alaska Airline Studio on 710 ESPN Seattle. Coming up at 8.30, as we do every night, Big If True, one person in the college sports world is making a ton of money, and it may not be the person who you're thinking of. Yes, it's uh, probably going to come to a big shock to yeah. all of you. Somebody's making a big check. We'll tell you if it's justifiable or not. That's coming up at 8.30 tonight here on Seattle Sports at Night. Uh, you can listen to the show via the 710 Sports app. It's driven by your Puget Sound Acura dealers. Uh, coming up at 8.45, we will take any and all of your questions. Text those into the Coors Light text line, 710-710. Ask us anything. That's the name of the segment. We mean it. Ask us anything right there on the Coors Light text line. But right now, the Mariners are they're sliding. They are sliding oh, really? in a big way. <laughs> We're talking like Blizzard Beach slide at Disney World. Oh, yeah. The one that is huge. Yeah, that's the kind of slide they're on right now. Have you done that before? Uh, not that slide. I've been to Blizzard Beach, yes. but I've not done that massive one. I not think my, my, a chance. Yeah, I think my cousin did it one time, and he got a giant red mark down his back. <laughs> It's like, yeah, I don't, I don't need that. I, have, I don't need that. No. Ugh, I have nightmares about that stuff. I am deathly afraid of heights, and I've overcome that with roller coasters. You cannot mm. get me going down one of those water slides that's literally just going straight down. 90-degree angle. No, thank you. Nothing strapping you in. Uh-uh. Not a chance. Just gravity. That's all that's, that's, all right. that's working on you right there. Uh, but the Mariners, they are free-falling. They have lost 27 of their last 37 it's a winning percentage under 300, which would be the worst in baseball if you extrapolate that over a 162-game schedule. And I wonder, like, can the Mariners actually truly be this bad over the course of a full season? And with the defense and the pitching the way it is right now, yeah, they probably could be. Yeah, which <laughs> uh, that that is not. That is not good to hear. That's a tough pill to swallow. Look, you you knew that this team was going to be rough coming into the season, but to look that the look the way that they're looking right now, man, it is so hard. And again, it just comes back to simple baseball. Can you field? Can you play defense? Just the simple things in life, right? Uh, lack of offensive production. Okay, I look. It's a step back. I could get on board with that. But missing routine uh, fly balls and not even being able to have the ability to throw to first base and, and field cleanly. I mean, those are routine things. And so uh, what, you, what you end up having is a lot of guys who they are trying out in different spots, right, Curtis? Like, it, it, these aren't guys that are necessarily playing the positions that they normally would be. You look at the Mariners roster and how it was, how it was constructed this offseason, 
there were a couple of guys that were trade candidates from the moment they became Mariners, specifically Edwin Encarnacion and Jay Bruce, two guys who are veterans in Major League Baseball, have a lot of playoff experience. They can hit the long ball, but they're very one-dimensional players. Mm-hmm. Where Edwin Encarnacion is mostly a bat. He plays a little bit of first base. He's played first base more this season than really in any other season, simply out of necessity. The Mariners have needed somebody to just man the position. He even played second base for a tiny bit. Right. Uh, and Jay Bruce, another guy who is he's a liability out in the outfield, and he's not going to be able to, to get too many hits. The ones he does get leave the ballpark. But these are two guys who you look at and say they're one-dimensional, but they can help out contending teams. John Morosi of MLB Network and Fox Sports, he joined Brock and Salk today and was asked about the possibility of moving Edwin Encarnacion, and he wasn't incredibly bullish on it. I think Encarnacion, for me, he still has a lot of value as, as a playoff-caliber tested hitter. We, he's really, at times this year, looked like an all-star still. Um, but here's the tricky part about that. You're looking at him as probably a first-base DH type, maybe maybe leaning more towards a DH on a competitive club. And so, to me, no matter how good Encarnacion's numbers are, the, the same market forces that, that reduced the, the overall marketplace for Edwin in the wintertime and, and why it was some of those same market forces exist today and, and could make moving him now a bit more problematic as well. He brings up the market for first-base DH types. That limits Encarnacion's trade value to specifically the American League because you're not going to find too many National League teams that are going to be willing to roll Encarnacion out there at first base every single day. And when you trade for a player of his caliber, you're not usually going to use him as a bench bat. Right. You look at the teams that are in contention in the American League, a lot of them have their DH spot figured out. The true. T- the Twins, they have, uh, they've got Nelson Cruz. The Yankees have a combination of Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, Brett Gardner, Aaron Hicks, one of those four guys. The Red Sox have J.D. Martinez. There aren't a lot of teams out there that are going to bend over backwards for the services of Edwin Encarnacion. It's extremely disappointing because that seemed to be the one chip that that the Mariners have right now that you could look at if you just didn't think about any of that. He is the one player on this roster that you look at and go, yes, he could be a great trade value too. He is a veteran who is performing exactly like you hoped he would, and hopefully you could get great trade value out of him. And John Barossi is kind of putting a a big damper on our thoughts there and, and saying that that might not be the case. I'm hopeful that some team out there, definitely would value his bat and value what he could bring to the table. Um, But that would put a huge wrench in your plans because he's absolutely a piece that you're hoping to deal and get some valuable young talent out of. Absolutely. Now, there is a player that Morosi did float as a possible trade possibility, but I'm not too excited about hearing this guy's name in trade talks, especially considering the season that he's had so far. That'd be one Daniel Vogelback. Vogelback, I think, you know, again, he's someone that uh, you could see him getting flipped depending on how much interest there is for him. Uh, and obviously he's selling a bit high on where he's at right now, but I think he's had a, a great year. Now, Vogelback could no, be, No. No, John Morosi. No, Vogelback? I feel, I feel no. like Ricky Bobby's uh, pit, car, uh, pit car master right now. Don't you wish that evil on me. <laughs> Don't you put that evil on us, John Morosi. How dare you? 
I want Daniel Vogel back here for this turnaround. I, I, what would you think if they traded him? The way you justify it is if you could get back a really good prospect in return. That is the only way you can justify it because the Mariners' DH spot, you've got about five guys who can play DH right now. Vogelback, Edward Encarnacion, Bruce, Domingo Santana, and Omar Narvaez. If you trade Vogelback, you can move Domingo Santana into that DH spot, but then that leaves a big hole out in left field, mm-hmm. which that may or may not be a good. <laughs> that may or may not be a bad thing from from the defense that we've seen, yeah. seen with Domingo Santana. I, I don't know if I would uh, be sad to see him leave that position. But Vogelback has shown in the first month and three quarters that he can be one of the best power hitters in the American League. He's got an OPS over a thousand. He's got 14 home runs on the year. He's been an incredible success in this season for the Mariners, and no matter how up or down the Mariners have been this season, Vogelback has produced, except for a little bit of a slump at the beginning of May, but he's broken out of that in a huge way. He's controllable. He's under contract. Those things are appealing to the Mariners. They're also very appealing to every other team out there. Yeah, it's true. Uh, look, I, I guess when you look at it from this part, and I don't want to think in this way, is that we've seen this before from from Mariners players. We've seen it with Kyle Seeger. We've seen it with Dustin Ackley. We've seen it with some players here on this franchise in recent history that have shown flashes of great of a great year, and then ultimately did not live up to what they what this organization, this club, was hoping that they could be in future years. I don't know if, if that would be the case with Daniel Vogelback. Uh, it's it's hard to project that, but I really feel like Vogelback is coming into his own and is going to be a legitimate DH uh, for any club moving forward. And you see that, yes, he did go into a slump, but he is still a very, very young player, and this is his first real year in the bigs. And you're going to go through moments like that, and it's really – you know, we were talking to Shannon Dreyer at one point in time. It was like Marco with Marco Gonzalez. With any starting pitcher, with any young starting pitching, uh, and you're going to go through slumps at different points in the season, and the difference is, is the great ones have the ability to snap out of it sooner. And Daniel Vogelback didn't go on a huge, long slump. It was a short slump, and he was able to get back out of it. And so if you can continue to see that type of growth and that type of turnaround from him, uh, I, I just would be – very disappointed to see him move on. I would love to see him be a part of this turnaround. Now, with the Mariners in a position to be sellers at the deadline, because I, I don't see them getting back into the American League West race. They're double-digit games back of Houston. The A's are getting hot. The Angels, they're actually playing respectable ball. And the Rangers just showed that they've got top bunk when it, when it comes to the Mariners. So... With all that being said, with Edwin Encarnacion maybe not being traded because of how small the DH market is in the American League and Daniel Vogelback being maybe a more hotter commodity out there, even though he's also a DH, it doesn't look like it would be a good time for the Mariners to be sellers, but that is not the case, at least according to John Morosi. The fact that the Mariners are going to be a seller in, in this first year of the new trade deadline is a positive thing. We're going to see teams that I believe are going to be more aggressive uh, in that area because you don't have the August trade period in anymore to help you out. So if you're a seller this year, the new rule should be a, a boon to the overall value of your players and, and should, uh, I think, spur a little more action on the part of the, of, the, of the buying clubs. And so he brings up the 
August 31st deadline, which no longer exists, which means the July 31st deadline is going to be way more active this season than in years past because you're not going to have teams use that month of August and say, you know what, we missed out on the, the regular trade deadline, but we still have another month to get our playoff roster in order. Yeah, It it heightens the sense of urgency around July 31st. So you're going to see teams make moves that they probably wouldn't make otherwise. Correct. But, Curtis, help me out here, okay? You're you're the Mariners insider. I'm here for, you. I'm here here, for okay? you, Jake. I just have a hard time when you have Vogelback, who was one of the Mariners' prospects over the last couple years. They develop him. He shines through in this one season, and then you're going to dump him for more prospects? How does this work? How does this make sense? You've got him under control for a few more years. I get trying to develop for for another year. Maybe he is a flash in the pan, but isn't that the risk that you take when you've developed him and he's still super young in his career? And, And looking at the success rate when you do acquire a handful of prospects, very few of them produce at the level that Vogelback is doing at the major league level. Very few of them even make it to the big leagues. When you acquire three, four guys at a time in a trade and, and they're all, you know, double A, single A players, yeah. That is one of the ultimate rolls of the dice in, in baseball. And the Mariners, if they really want to commit to twenty twenty as being the year that they get back into contention, which you look at it right now in twenty nineteen they're a lot further off from contention than I think they thought they were. Yeah. Oh, and that, and by moving on from Daniel Vogelback, that would that would put further distance between their championship opportunity window and where they are right now. Absolutely. And that's the part where in this conversation, that's where I hope that they really do not actually consider that because that is what has been sold to us. Uh 2020 2021 you're going to sell them off for more prospects for what? For a chance that they're never going to develop? And, and and they brought in guys like Malik Smith, D. Gordon, players that they really were hoping. I mean, Malik Smith was a guy that they felt was going to absolutely be a part of their future. He has not done anything to enforce that opinion. Correct. And so now you're you're in search again for a leadoff hitter, for a center fielder that can bring legitimate defense to you. And and so the only sure things that you have right now, uh, and even Mitch Haniger, as much as I love Mitch Haniger, his average is is less to be desired right now. Two thirty, right? I mean that's that's not what you want as your all star type of player, your five tool player. Well, and the guy uh, that, hitting the guy that they kind of centered all these moves around this offseason, the one guy who they said was basically untouchable. Yes. And he comes out of the gates. His OPS is in a good spot, and he's, the home run numbers are there, but he's not putting the ball in play like he used to. And the strikeouts are, are much, they leave a lot to be desired. And I mean, right now, I think the Mariners missed on moving guys who could have brought back even more of a return than what they got. And I think they could have been better off with that rather than the declining values of the Malik Smiths, of the Hanegers, of all these guys that aren't in a position to just be superstars right now. Right. So, I mean, the, the, that's what I go back to is like Haniger, you're really hoping that he can get out of this and that he can be the player that you're ultimately hoping he can be. Daniel Vogel, back to me, is one of those guys. Uh, you got Marco Gonzalez and Yusei Kikuchi. Um, and, and outside of those guys right now, 
you know, I know that they are really uh, – they have high expectations for J.P. Crawford and they love his development. They're going to continue to let him play and get that experience. But I haven't loved what I've seen from him. Uh, he's played really well in AAA but hasn't been uh, mind-blowing to me at defense. Hasn't been significantly better than Tim Beckham in my mind so far. Uh, so it, it's just – been one of those things where I'm at a loss of words for where they're at and who are the key pieces moving forward. Domingo Santana, I, I like what his back can do and, and, and what he does at the plate, but can he overcome this defense? Can he actually develop and be a better defensive player than what he has shown this year? I don't know. we got a lot of time to figure that out. We've got a lot of time to figure that out. Coming up next here on Seattle Sports Tonight, it's time for another edition of Big If True Somebody very high up in college athletics made a whole lot of cash in 2018. In fact, they made a 60% increase over what they made in 2017. We will get to the bottom of it next. Curtis Rogers and Jake Heaps right here. Seattle Sports Night on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to Seattle Sports at Night with Curtis Rogers, Jake Heaps, and Stacey Rost. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio on 710 ESPN Seattle. Shout out to you for stopping by here on Seattle Sports Night. We will be back with you on Monday. We don't do Fridays around here, which I'm okay with. Well, we won't be back on Monday, actually. That's right, because it's Memorial, Memorial Day. Day. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we will be uh, taking the day off. And... Yep, hope you guys all get the day off as well. Yeah. I know you guys are grinders out there driving around late at night and uh, working late at night. And uh, hope you guys got some awesome Memorial Day plans. Absolutely. It's uh, it's good to have a day off. <laughs> and it's good to have, uh, you know, also be thankful on that day, too, because it's a, it's a very, very important American holiday. Absolutely. You don't want to forget the reason why we celebrate Memorial Day. But that's coming up on Monday. But we still got a couple segments left here on Seattle Sports at Night, including Big If True. And we get we go to Big If True every single night here on Seattle Sports at Night. It is Something we have heard during the day or a, a figure that we've seen throughout the day that kind of makes us stop in our tracks and say, well, that's, that's big if true. And tonight it brings us to the NCAA and the guy who is in charge of it all. This can't be happening! Big. You can't be serious, man. If. Did, did he, he say that? that? True. History is going to change. The bottom line on the hottest opinions of the day. You cannot be serious! Tonight's Big If True comes to us from Yahoo Sports, who reported today that the head of the NCA, Mr. Mark Emmert, who, former University of Washington president, former Green River College alum, mm. pride of Fife, Washington. Uh, so this guy's local, local boy. About as, about as local as it gets. Uh, he is the head of the NCAA. And last year, he was given a 60% raise. Over 2017, making close to $4 million, about $3.9 million in 2018. Now, Jake, I don't know if you paid attention to this uh, in the NCAA, which you would have to have been blind or deaf to not notice this. There's a little like FBI investigation going on in college athletics. Yeah. And the NCAA has been just notoriously silent about this whole thing. Right. They haven't ruled on anybody. They haven't handed out a punishment yet. They haven't done anything. Right. What are they supposed to do, Curtis? They're supposed to enforce NCAA rules? What? Are, 
They are, which is interesting because they haven't in any of these instances. Huh. But they'll enforce rules when a player has no idea what's going on, but one of their family members takes a side deal, Mm -hmm. and they've got no idea. I mean, sorry, you know, Kansas basketball, uh, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Yeah, with uh, Silvio D'Souza. Yeah, giving him a two-year penalty for something he had literally outside of his immediate circle had hands involved with. I mean, just they they continue to amaze me. And, I mean, he makes a 60% raise, which when I looked at incredible salaries being made by college executives and NCAA executives, you've got Mark Emmert making $3.9 million, whereas the people that he's advertising and selling to TV companies and with all these deals, they're not making anything. But Mark Emmert, get this, he still made 27% less than the Pac-12 commissioner, Larry Scott. 27%. <laughs> even with a 60% just, salary increase. Just, Curtis, is just so mind-blowing. I just don't even know where to start. Larry Scott made about $5.4 million a year so ago. So wrong. So wrong. Like, Yo, these guys are raking in the dough like crazy. Larry and Scott doesn't even have to produce anything. No, Larry Scott's conference has become a laughingstock amongst the college football and college basketball world. Yeah, they're racking up water polo titles and volleyball titles, which, <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. If you play those sports, shout out to you. You're better at those than I've ever been. But those aren't the sports that are going to bring eyes to the conference. They're, those aren't the sports that are going to bring the or TV numbers. Bring, or bring the revenue to support yeah. those programs. That's what it's all about. And and that is just the most mind-blowing thing out there. And and so when you look at this and you talk about paying college athletes, don't tell me that there's not enough money to go around. There is plenty of money I to mean, go around. These guys are yeah. raking it in. And it is just the most obscene thing that I have ever that I've ever witnessed. You talk about... Um, a country that is all about capitalism and and being able to uh, get your market value exactly and and the one place the one place where it's not acceptable is in the NCAA and amateurism and everybody else all the quote unquote adults get to make the money and the players get nothing in return other than a nice little scholarship. Uh, for their tuition, which is a big deal, and it's a great honor, and don't get me wrong, that's a huge thing. But come on, man. Are you kidding me? That is not worth the market of what they're bringing to the table. That's why in the NFL, that is why in professional sports, the athlete is king when it comes to their contracts, not the coaches. And so how is it in this backward, back, uh, backward way world of NCAA athletics that the coaches – and that the administrators are the ones that are profiting in a massive way off of these athletes. Makes no sense to me. No, it's it's completely unjustifiable that either Mark Emmert or Larry Scott are making the dollar amount that they're making based off of what we have seen, the, the results of their leadership. Larry Scott has driven the Pac-12 into the ground. He's made them a laughing stock. Mark Emmert has continually dropped the ball when the NCAA has needed a ruling on something, or they have gone way beyond their reach in certain cases. Like, I believe it was a Boise State linebacker who was living in his car a couple of years ago, and he got 
free lodging, and the NCAA told him he was ineligible because you can't get free lodging if you are going to play college sports. And, like, this dude was homeless. And they said, no, no, you can't play. Like, you got to be able to pay for your own housing. Right. And, like, this guy's getting a full-ride scholarship and is living out of his car. Like, that's that's absurd, and yet the right. NCAA is like, nope, not good enough. So you look at the two guys, whose salary, who salary is less justifiable? That is the $64,000 question, because neither one of these guys has done much to deserve the paycheck that they're getting. Now, for them to be able to negotiate those kinds of salaries, tip of the cap to them. Tip of the cap to their agents to work those deals out. <laughs> right. Because that is one of the ultimate finesses that we have ever seen. Right, but they're they're taking advantage of a flawed system. They're taking advantage of this opportunity to profiteer off of what is going on and what is backwards in the NCAA. And so, look, what is the solution? I don't know. I think there is a lot of, I think there's a lot of good opinions that are out there. Uh, you know, starting with the player being able to make money off of his likeness, I think is a good start. I don't think it's the final answer, however, because what you end up doing in an amateurism world is you start creating a great gap between the star players on your team and also the guys that are at the bottom of the total pole. So that's not the that's not the dynamic that you want in college athletics. But at the same time, uh, guys should be able to uh, make money in that category, and they should also be making money off of the revenue that is coming in, which is the big TV markets. And you might have certain conferences that might not be able to afford that for their college athletics, but there are others that absolutely can. Power five conferences could absolutely do that and and, and do it without even flinching uh, by just taking from certain revenue streams, and it, and they would have plenty left over. So there is absolutely solution that can work for these kids. Uh, and and like you said, that example that should never happen. As an athlete that was getting a scholarship stipend. It, it barely co- it barely covered my cost of living. I, I yes, I got my scholarship. I had my scholarship and my tuition paid for, but I, also I wasn't able to go and work a job because of the the time demands uh, with school and with athletics. And the stipend that I had was mostly to cover my rent check. Right, it, I barely had a, like a couple hundred dollars, and players had. I mean, they live off a couple hundred dollars. You're eating PB and J exactly every single month, dinner. and they're supposed to be high, high tuned, highly tuned machines, and, and and keeping their bodies right. And you just don't have the ability to do that. So there, this is a this is a flawed system. And anybody that wants to put their head in the sand and say that it isn't, just really doesn't want to wake up to the realities of what's going on. I'm not saying that they should be getting paid millions of dollars, but there is a definite meet in the middle that, that the NCAA and everybody else needs to look towards. And and the fact that you're getting coaches that are getting 90-plus million-dollar contracts is a slap in the face. We want your questions here on Seattle Sports Tonight. Ask us anything to the Coors Light text line 710-710. We wrap up Thursday night right here on Seattle Sports Tonight on 710 ESPN Seattle. Live from the Alaska Airlines studio. This is Seattle Sports at Night with Curtis Rogers, Jake Heaps, and Stacy Rost on 710 ESPN Seattle. We need your text questions to the Coors Light text line 710-710. It's time for you to ask Jake Heaps and myself, Curtis Rogers, anything here on Seattle Sports Tonight. 
as we wrap up this Thursday. We wrap up the week for us. We'll be back with you next Tuesday. Jake, we got some questions. Let's see here. Uh, let's go with from the 425. Which sock do you put on first, the right or the left? Good question. I, I don't think I designate exactly what foot I go with first. I think it just kind of happens in the morning. Do you? Do you? I, I, I'm i pretty sure I put my right sock on first, mm. which is interesting because I'm left-handed and left-footed. But, yeah, I think I go right foot. Which Fair is, enough. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I'll, what does I'll, try, that say? I'll try and pay attention. I'm gonna. I'm gonna pay attention to this moving forward. From the two five three, <laughs> would you rather take a bath in mac and cheese or applesauce? I'd go mac and cheese. That's gonna be a little warmer. Mac and cheese, really? Yeah, that's gonna be a little warmer. Applesauce is pretty cold. Yeah, I don't want to get could, in there. That could potentially burn you. And but you're gonna, the get, text, you're the, gonna get sticky with the applesauce. The, the texture, the density. Oh yeah. What? But then, like, what if it congeals on you? You're stuck in that bath. <laughs> like, you're that. That's it for you. I, I think I would enjoy eating my way out of applesauce a lot more than mac and cheese. <laughs> uh, from the two oh six, we got DJ Fluker told Danny David Moore he got stuck into a smart car. Have you guys ever gotten stuck anywhere? Uh, no, I haven't gotten stuck anywhere. Like uh, like DJ, I'm not that massive of a human no. being where I can end up getting myself stuck. Uh, what about you, Curtis? Me, and- I remember as a kid, I got my head stuck in the railings on our stairs as a kid. That happened, I think, just one time. Luckily, our railings are a little bendy. <laughs> so That could have been dicey right there. Yeah, I, I don't know who helped me out. It was definitely an adult who did, but... Uh, yeah, I got a pretty big melon, so that I should have seen that coming, but I also was like probably four or five years old at the time. What else we got on the Coors Light text line? Uh, from the 360, will Earl Thomas intercept Russell Wilson this season? Mm. Ravens come to Seattle. It's a good question, man. I'll I tell you what, one of, my, one of the coolest things watching – uh, practice as as a member of the Seahawks was being able to watch the dueling of Russell Wilson and Earl Thomas in the middle of the field. Watching Russell try and uh, you know fake out Earl with his eyes and shoulders, and Earl trying to stay back in the middle of the field and, and try and guess where Russell was going. It was one of the great chess matches that happened every single day in practice. And man, that guy, you know that that's going to happen again. So. I don't know, man. I don't know if that's going to end up happening. I know Russell's going to make it a point and respects the heck out of Earl, so I don't think he's going to put too many balls in in, a, in in harm's way where Earl can go and make a play on it. So I say no. 206 says, I'm right-handed and I put my left sock on first, so maybe there's something to it. Uh, from the 253, what do you guys do for the other 22 hours a day? I'm here normally for a good chunk of those other 22 hours. Uh, sleep a You lot. are. Yeah. You're grinding here, man. I, Working I am, the board. I am grinding. Mariners post game, pre game. Yeah. Curtis Rogers is a staple of this building. Jake, you're currently remodeling the Heaps family home. That's correct. Yes. You've got a, a two year old to raise and a pregnant wife. <laughs> That's right. Let's just let's just try and make my life seem so difficult. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All the difficult things that are going on. Slaving away. There, there is a lot going on. I'll tell you what. It is busy, but I am grateful for that. I mean, goodness gracious, the 
uh, if anybody tells you to, hey, hey, it is really fun to take on an older home and renovate, they are lying to you. <laughs> they are lying to you. It is a money drain. It, 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 it'll be really fun to see how it all turns out. We're really excited about the project. We'll probably share some before and after pictures, too. But, uh, man, it's it's crazy. Uh, 425, please mention the Indy 500 on Sunday. It was always a family favorite growing up. Now folks are gone, but I plan to watch. Mm. Shout out to the Indy 500. That's, That's right. one of those sporting events I think would be much cooler to see in person. Without a than doubt. Than on TV. I've never been to a, like a, a NASCAR race or an IndyCar race. Yeah. That, that's probably on my sports bucket list. Yeah, this is a horrible take, but I feel like once you've seen the start and you've seen a couple laps, you just need to you know go away for a little bit and then just come back to the end. Go to the nacho it, wagon. That, that's right. You'll be you'll be fine. You'll be fine. You won't miss out on much. Oh man. And then uh last question, Jake, this is definitely tailored towards you because I've never been traded or released in the NFL. When the two five three when players get traded, players go into a new city, who sets everything up for them and where does it stay? Great question. Nobody. A lot of a lot of times, I mean, you have you have maybe a, a player personnel guy that can help uh, uh, help you uh, hook you up with an eight, uh, a real estate agent or someone that uh, usually works with guys on the team. But for the most part, you're on your own, man. And, and that's the crazy part about professional sports is when you travel and you're a journeyman. Uh, it is a tough tough situation because you're paying for everything out of pocket. When I was a rookie. They take when you're a rookie. They take care of you. They house you. They put you up in a hotel. But that next year, you're paying. That's so it. let's say you're a bubble guy, Curtis, and you're not guaranteed to make oh, this roster, right? You are you are through OTAs, through training camp. You are paying for your housing, uh, and and that's that comes at a steep cost. And you're not necessarily getting paid a bunch of money and guaranteed to make that that uh, that roster money. Uh, so it's sometimes guys lose out on money just trying to make a team. It's crazy. That caps off our week here on Seattle Sports Night. Make sure you're downloading the podcast, 710sports.com. Click on the podcast page. You can subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating. Leave us a review. Please. It's it's all there for you. That's going to do it for us. For the quarterback, Jay Keeps, I'm Curtis Rogers. This is Seattle Sports Night on 710 ESPN Seattle.